the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome again to the podcast. Hello, Justin. Hi, Lindsay. It's good to be back. It is good. I'm pretty stoked. I mean, I'm always stoked about the movies that we do, but um, this one in particular was uh, formative for me. I mean, it's not an Oscar winner, but um, definitely beloved by young gays and uh, Sundance Film Festival threw some love at it as well. And the movie we're talking about is 1999's But I Am a Cheerleader. I drove an hour and a half from the town I went to high school in to, to come see it, the big city of St. Louis. That's a big, big commitment. <laughs> yeah, I w- there's no way I wasn't, uh, or I was going to miss this one. Man, I'm that just drive curious. home was how, real long. I'm just long. curious, how <laughs> did you hear about this movie in 1999? Because, you know, there wasn't really, uh, I mean, there was internet, obviously, but there wasn't, I don't even, I mean, was IMDb even a thing yet? Um. I don't I don't recall how, but I was pretty internet savvy around that time. I mean, before that, thanks to X Files chat rooms and whatnot. Um, Aqua X two, Bravo Echo One, those were my handles at the time. Um There's a couple of people out there. <laughs> oh, that's what happened to you. Yeah. What's up? <laughs> um but I mean I was um I, I, was just, on. I just feel like I've just gotten so much information <laughs> just in the opening <laughs> of this podcast. I but I've, I've got questions when we're done recording. Uh, I'm I'm receptive to them, but I I feel like like if I'm if I'm really churned back in my memory here, like I had I had floppy disks of like you know X Files pictures and like no doubt picture whatever stuff that i collected from the internet because at that time it's like this could all disappear and now it's just still out there but i do distinctly remember having a floppy disk that said but i'm a cheerleader pics wow so um i knew about it i was a little i was a little mo so yeah um so we are talking about but i'm a cheerleader a couple topics that we we want to hit on with this are kind of its placement in politics, kind of like where it was or where when this came out in um, American culture, where it came out in gay movie history. Also, the importance of stereotypes, how stereotypes are used in this movie. What else, Justin? Probably talk about how this movie is definitely a satire, but I think mm-hmm. has enough heart in it to take you along for it. Because I know satires can be judged pretty harshly sometimes. Yeah. Um, and this one, I think, functions both as a satire and as like a straightforward sort of sweet comedy. And I, I think with this one, too, it's it's easy to brush this one off. As I think with a lot of comedies, sometimes it's easy to like just throw them away and like they don't really like, yeah, that was a cute, funny movie. But I think when it's an intelligent satire, it's a movie worth diving a little bit deeper into and seeing. Some things are really obvious with this movie, but then there there are some things that are, um, you know, it's um, this movie was very special for its time, what it was trying to do. And uh, I always we haven't done too many super independently funded films on this podcast Mm -hmm. most independent films to me a lot of times the story of how they got made and released and the reaction is just as interesting as the films themselves so yeah talk a little bit about that reaction is um 
yeah, definitely important on this one. Kind of mixed, but I would say um, overall fair. We'll go deeper on that one. So uh, that's our main feature, but I'm a cheerleader. Um, after that, we'll talk about our picks of the week. Um, what was your pick of the week, Lindsay? Uh, my pick was another another one that was formative in my early gay youth. Not as lighthearted, but a movie called All Over Me from 98. Yes. That was almost my pick of the week, and then you seemed very strongly about doing that one. So I, I, I felt like I didn't want to. I had already actually like committed in my head. I'm like, I'm going to yeah. do all over me. And then you said that. And I was like, oh, okay. You sent me a text. and You're like, seriously, tell me what your picks of the week are like in the next hour. <laughs> Cause if it's not that I like need to get over the heartbreak of it and then I'm going to like move on. I just took that as a, a subtle <laughs> way of saying, if you want to pick a different movie, that'd be cool too. So I picked a different movie. My pick of the week was, uh, yeah. What was your pick? Justin? My pick was my own private Idaho. Excellent. Um, Gus Van Sant is one of my favorite directors, and this movie is one. Um, and with, uh, but I'm a cheerleader uh, that we'll talk about another. I think one of the few gay themed movies at the time that uh, had a more sort of positive outlook. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like a full on tragic story. Yeah. Wait. Which so many movies I think at the time. Wait, wait, wait! Not all stories about gay people are tragic. It's true. They're out. There's a few out Whoa. there. Oh, like the one that we're talking right. about, like the main one we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm excited about my own private Idaho. I'm excited about hearing that. I need to rewatch it too. And I, I was looking forward to getting a River Phoenix movie again on the podcast. Mm. And I uh, finally got a Gus Van Sant movie on the podcast, though I'll, I'll be pushing for Drugstore Cowboy for a long time to oh, do that. I'm, I'm good with these that. Days. I'm good with that. Well, I'm excited about talking about this one. Um, then we have Murray Moment, as always. And uh, before we get into But I'm a Cheerleader, can you give us the lowdown? What's But I'm a Cheerleader about? This story follows uh, Natasha Leone, who's a little darling on this podcast, it's turning out. Uh, she is a naive high school cheerleader um, who kind of gets ambushed by her friends and family. And they confront her and they're like, Boo. You're trying to make us eat this tofu. You got these weird vaginal things all around your room. You like Melissa Etheridge. We think you're gay. So we're going to send you to an ex-gay camp. And Natasha Leone plays Megan, gets sent to this ex-gay camp. Not a not a religious camp, overly religious anything. It's just uh, looking to set you straight. And she, along with, I think, seven other kids go through that whole process and this is of course a satirical look at something that was very 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 real for I think close to 40 years before it was officially disbanded even though ex-gay camps still do exist so um yeah it's about a ex-gay camp a comical take on a very serious subject. I will say the the telltale signs of being gay have come a long way since, in 10 years of, since Heather's. And Heather's, it was just mineral water, <laughs> gay pornography, and, and we've made the jump to like Melissa Etheridge posters. And Wait, there was yeah. something else in there too. Oh, it was like stud puppy. Never mind. Yeah. Stud puppy. Copy yeah. of stud puppy yeah. is going to be pretty obvious there. <laughs> I love my dead gay son. <laughs> Sorry. Only 10 years between this and Heather's. But. Whew. We have come a long way. Yeah. 
So uh, we'll <laughs> we've go come to, even longer too. This is the twentieth yeah, twentieth anniversary wow. too of uh, this movie being made and released at yeah. film festivals. I wonder what the telltale signs are in twenty nineteen. Oh man, anything I could say is just going to be offensive right yeah. now. I got to live in the past, so I'm not offensive. Let's well, not offend anybody. We'll just go straight to a clip. Sounds good. Here's a clip from, but I'm unsure later, then we'll talk about it. Why don't we discuss the issues in your intervention? Well, I'm a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. I have pictures of women around. You think that's normal? Sure. I never really thought about it. Have you ever had a boyfriend? Yes. For two years, we've been going steady. I really love him. He's smart and popular. He's got the biggest dick I've never seen. Well, um, have you ever had sex with him? I'm a Christian. It's really easy to be a prude when you're not attracted to him, isn't it? He's very handsome. But does he make you hot? I mean, do you think of him at night when you... I'm not perverted. I get good grades. I go to church. I'm a cheerleader. I'm not like all of you. Everyone reads Cosmo. Everyone looks at other girls all the time. But you only assume that they're thinking what you're thinking when they look. But they're not. So I think a good place to start when talking about But I'm a Cheerleader is kind of where we were as American culture in 1999. We've kind of of come a long way in 20 years on how people that aren't gay feel about LGBTQ people and kind of come a long way, still have a long way to come as far as that representation in movies. But I feel like this movie was one of the most positive gay movies um, that I can remember. I mean, there are certainly ones that have positive aspects to them, but they generally always have tragedy or something terrible in it, or they don't end with the girls ending up together. You know that this gay camp is going to be defunct real soon because all of those kids that graduated that gay camp, they are they are not quote-unquote fixed. So it's going to go the way that the real Exodus camp did. But um, this movie just is overall positive, which I think it was so refreshing i think helped a lot a lot of people that that went and saw it and and sort of bold in the sense of doing something lighthearted and comedic mm-hmm. you know during this time this was 1999 mm-hmm. like one year before this yeah one year before this matthew shepherd was beaten and left for dead and, and died a lot of movies a lot of documentaries a lot of stories were really focusing on more of harsh realities and this yeah. movie decided to take a different turn and I think possibly was like criticized for that you know mm-hmm. like but people I, were you know Ellen had come out Ellen DeGeneres came out in 97 and you know people were like oh why can't they just keep that to themselves like that's where we were you know then comes this movie that's poking fun at people that are are anti-gay and are saying Actually, there, there's nothing wrong with us, and it's you guys that are instilling these very stereotypical gender roles and like very heteronormative ideas that are not really based in something that's natural. And what's strange is that a lot of the gender role satire in this almost seems more relevant to today than it did. It's funny, it, it's right? Because I think gender roles is something that 
is being talked about more now and especially like when people have babies now like we had talked about like they have gender parties and (laughs) you know and this really doing stereotypes and all the guys in this movie were wearing blue all the women Mm -hmm. in the movie are wearing pink and a lot of people chalk that up to saying that the, the this is what makes it campy or whatever but i i've never really thought that the blue pink thing it it seems way more on the nose of reinforcing gender stereotypes than it does anything about being camp or trying to look campy yeah when well, i think too watching this movie today this movie seems sharper to me than it did in the 90s when i watched it granted i was much younger but this movie was much more self-aware than a lot of people gave her credit for because i think it's trying to deconstruct these things that we all just accept and it's doing it by making fun of it and it's making fun of it and and you're laughing at it before you really know what you're laughing at yeah and having the women do the vacuuming the guys are like chopping (laughs) wood and working on automobile you know yeah working on cars and yeah like there was there was one scene that it didn't really dawn on me and until like one of these last times watching it that there's there's a scene in this where um, all the kids at the ex-gay camp go with uh, the camp leader played by Kathy Moriarty, who's Mary Brown, who's very stringent. She's a raging bull dyke herself, even though she's... Anyway. <laughs> so there's a scene where all the kids in the camp are going to protest the Underground Homo Railroad, is what they call it. Uh, this this house that's run by these two guys who are ex-ex-gays who were in a camp like this and then were like... F this, this isn't this isn't right. And they they take in all of the kids that from from the camp that um decide to leave or get kicked out or whatever or kicked out of their houses. Um anyway, so the the kids from the camp are going to protest them. And there's a moment when the leader of our of our ex gay camp called True Directions, of course, says it's not easy for them. You know, like this is hard for them. And it didn't dawn on me until that moment that, like, you have to be trained to, like, hate, you know? And I mean, I know that, like, whether it's sexuality-based or race or anything, like, whatever it is, you have to be actually be trained to, to hate something. And so this is putting a spotlight on that and just saying, look at what we're doing. And just one more thing before we go to another clip. I mentioned this before, how this, this movie kind of change things in a lot of different ways um, as far as like being a positive uh, representation or a, po- a positive message of, of a LGBTQ uh, movie. And that's not to say they didn't exist before. Like the incredibly true adventure of two girls in love. Have you seen that, Justin? I have not seen that, no. Um, God, I, I want to say it was like 94 or 5. Very sickeningly positive, adorable after-school special movie. It's wonderful. I love it. But for the most part, they are kind of hit or miss. You know, there's like Desert Hearts in like 82 that was somewhat positive. There are like some positive things about Personal Best in the early 80s. But I'm, for the most part, gay people had always been whether they be like gay or trans people or any variation off of being straight, anything other than straight and, you know, male, female, it was either like you're a victim, a killer, or something awful is going to happen to you, or you're meant to live a, a terrible, tragic life. And it's not to say that those stories didn't exist and that you know people queer people didn't have 
you know, rough lives and these were the stories being told, they totally did. But what was missing were the good stories or like the happy endings to movies. And I know that But I'm a Cheerleader is, you know, a satire and it is a comedy, a play on something that is very serious, but it was very refreshing at the time in 99 for a movie like this to come out. I mean, even, you know, a few years later, we had Brokeback Mountain, which won Oscars everywhere. Ang Lee is wonderful, but still like that was a period piece and it was super like not cool in a lot of ways yeah. like it's not a happy ending movie um and and i feel like even now there are still not a lot of happy ending movies like they they are there and it would be nice to get to a point you know we make a movie and it's it's not a thing to have a gay character or a trans character or whatever it's just like you find out 45 minutes later that 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 lady's a lesbian you know it's not like part of the story it's yeah. just who they are but this i feel like was such an important movie in 1999 to to um come out and be kind of like a a springboard for other movies or for not even for other movies just to be like oh yeah we can make a good movie that has a positive outlook and still address you know issues I mean because yeah I, and still address I issues I honestly didn't yeah. know that there were like camps that were they were trying to like quote unquote reprogram oh, people. Really? I didn't I mean when this oh, movie man. came out I just that was oh yeah complete I mean when I um I was like twenty or whatever, nineteen yeah. or twenty when this came out, but I uh, thought you were gonna say until you just like watched no, it no, this last no, time. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Um, uh, but I just mean like it was still trying to address uh some somewhat of a it's like a real really thing that depressing, it, terrible yeah. issue, but again, like we said, taking it like from, from a lighthearted stance. Yeah, and, take like taking the piss out of something that's awful and turning it on its head and showing you how all of these things are pretty ridiculous, basically. Well, we'll go to a clip, but when we come back, we'll talk about the other side of this movie, and that's the controversy that the movie faced with the uh, MPAA. Yeah. And did I say that right? MPAA, Motion Picture association of america okay right yeah those masked people that rate movies um, who are they but this movie with all its positivity <laughs> and all its um charm uh was still a bit too controversial for the censors um for some of its themes so controversial so we'll uh we'll come back we'll talk about that all those hot sex scenes with clothes on <laughs> how dare they i've never seen such a determined group and I am passing all but one of you. Andre, hmm? you may pack your bags. Now there's cake in the kitchen. You'll want to rest up for the simulation. Michael, congratulations. I just wasn't meant to be but. I'm a sissy. No. <laughs> You should be proud of who you are. Hello? I, I, I mean, you're more than just a sissy. You're nice and, and clean and smart and sexy and firm and luscious and Excuse me. The last thing I need right now is some fruit who just proved he's straight telling my ass how sexy I am. Congratulations. Liars, you know who you are and you know who you want. Ain't nobody gonna change that shit. 
so this film, uh, like we were saying before the clip, uh, did run into some struggles mm-hmm. uh, after it was finished with the MPAA. Now, the MPAA is a organization that watches movies and they give something an R rating or PG-13 or a PG. And there's certain sort of standards, like you can say the F word once in a PG-13 movie, yeah. which I don't think you can even do anymore. Back in when it, they first started, you could say one F word in like a PG film in like the 80s, I think. And then they didn't have PG-13 yet. So it's it's definitely grown. But, the ta- mm-hmm. the, but I will say when it comes to sex, uh, that's where films have the biggest struggle but um gay theme films have a bigger struggle than straight films do when yeah. they're approaching mpa with sex scenes um so like you can have a movie like nine and a half weeks can get an r rating <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> but, in that movie but Come uh on. they were going to give <laughs> but i'm a cheerleader in nc-17 yeah rating. yeah and if I um, if I got got all of that cor- heard all of it correctly, that it was based on three things. One was there. There's a scene where Natasha Leone is masturbating, and nothing was reshot in this scene. It was the scene was just longer, yeah. and she's standing up and manually doing that, but it's over her clothes or over a nightgown. Um, the second scene was, uh, and you can kind of hear how it's overdubbed in the movie. Um, after Natasha Leone and Clea Duvall uh, sleep together, Natasha Leone's awakened to being confronted by the headmistress and uh, people at the camp. And they're like, get out of bed. Do you know what you did? And you could hear in the movie it says or she says what did i do and someone says a little sleepover with graham well that line was you went down on graham or something like that um that line whew, no go on that one that was just too racy and the sex scene in this um i was a little unclear i don't think that the sex scene had to be reshot but it I think it was taking into account that it was getting, um, I think Jamie Babbitt knew that she was going to get flack for it. So it was shot in a very particular way. It's very shadowy. It's, you know, hands on legs and uh, it's fully clothed. It's very tame and the, and they're kissing and that's it. Um, Jamie Babbitt really felt like this movie, the, the reason that it was, um, that they had such a problem with it. It was that it was because it was women getting pleasure from an, another woman. And that's what was so offensive to it because like a year before was when we had American pie and that was like completely fine. And that guy's straight up making love to an apple pie, you know? Yeah. And there was even nudity. You see his butt, right. um, you well, know, like uh, there's no nudity in this. Well, and, and, and that's the thing that, um, uh, like a, even when I was researching my own private Idaho, mm-hmm. um, you know, my own private Idaho came out in 1991. And when you read reviews of the movie or people talking about the movie, mm-hmm. um, they always use the word controversial scenes. <laughs> uh, they never say like sex scenes or yeah. like, you know what I mean? And you know, this movie came out in 1991, 
84 revenge of the nerds came out and <laughs> you know these guys are like openly talking about females while they're videotaping them yeah that um, was okay while they're unaware and you know saying all kinds of controversial things yeah but uh yeah. you know they can't say just sex scenes when they're talking about mount private idaho which um <laughs> by the way if you haven't seen my own private idaho and you're scared to watch it because of <laughs> the all controversial, these controversial scenes. scenes you have nothing to worry about you'll yeah, be fine it's not that bad yeah, but it's it's they were very hard on, but I'm a cheerleader, and I think hopefully, I believe we've come a long, long way with them. I mean, I would really hope so. It felt like that the way that this one was treated was was homophobic, and if if anything, it was it was kind of sexist, too. And there there is a moment later in this movie where RuPaul plays kind of the second in command of, ironically, the, of of the person who's in charge of the ex gay camp. And he's showing the guys how to work on a car. And he says, okay, who wants to go down on me or go, go go down with me? That is fine when we're talking about or when a guy is saying it, but like not when a woman's saying it in reference to something. It just seems like a weird double standard that, um, I don't know, it's kind of whack. But we have come a long way. You know, we were talking about the release of the film, you know, it had some struggles, but it did eventually get an r rating Mm -hmm. and this movie um was i mean this is a very independently made low budget movie yeah you know and 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 it did really well you know performed well on the festival circuit i mean this movie played in uh enough theaters i mean i was living working in carbondale illinois which is a very tiny small college town and it played in our theater Mm -hmm. um and this movie you know it wasn't like this huge runaway independent success but it did pretty well for itself. Yeah, and this, you know, we said this movie came out 20 years ago, and a lot of movies that are 20-plus years old, I mean, almost every movie that we do for the podcast is 20-plus years old. The As soon as we pick a movie, the first thing that, when I watch, is like, how is this movie held up the test of yeah. time? Is it better? Is it worse? Is it dated? Whatever. And, you know, I call that stuff out when I see it. Yeah, You know I mean? I can't help it, but... Uh, this movie, to me, when it came out, um, got kind of bashed a lot for being sort of a, a John Waters knockoff and mm-hmm. not having its own voice. You know, we did Serial Mom for this. And when I watched this movie, you know, upon researching it, I was like, you know, is it, I don't get that. And I wonder, you know, at the time when this movie came out, and not a lot of movies, I, I think we're doing what this movie was doing. And I think that it, it kind of got like a raw deal as far as like, just you know, and it has Mink stolen in it, and it does have some camp, and it does have this su- sort of suburban dismay that a John mm-hmm. Waters film has. But I do think this movie has its own voice, and I think that this movie plays fresher now than it did then. I think when you watch this movie now, you can clearly see that yeah. it has its own voice. It's not a John Waters ripoff, um, and I think that it was just at the time it came out it was just it needed some time to separate itself from being. And also, this movie is very, very low budget, and independent. Yeah. I mean, you know, this definitely is not the John Waters of the '70s, who was super rugged. No. And low. I mean, and it's definitely not. <laughs> no. the, but it's definitely too low budget to be the John Waters of the end '90s or after. Hollywood yeah. John. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's its own thing, and was kind of judged unfairly on that. And now I think that in the last twenty years, I feel like you can. This needs to be looked at with some fresh eyes. I feel like when this came out. It was kind of the only thing that people had to grab onto 
was through something as obvious as like, oh yeah, this is a John Waters light movie. First of all, John Waters would never make this movie. It has too, there's too much like for real romance. It has too much heart. It's not grotesque. When it's like, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I just wanted to, and or we could quote John Waters himself because uh, we had the rare opportunity to see John. We had the rare opportunity to see John Waters in a, this this movie was too gay themed for John Waters. Yeah, I I asked when Justin and I went to go see John Waters, and my favorite movie I've talked about before is Desperate Living, and that's like the movie I I, I God I don't even remember my exact question, and and he was very quick to correct me that I don't make gay movies, and it's like totally you don't yes desperate living had featured a hell of a lot of lesbians when you said desperate living he like he like backed off and he's yeah. like okay 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 desperate living. you know what i mean i'll give you that he's one like, i, I made thought it- you meant what i've been doing like the almost all of my career it's like i don't make gay movies so i think that there are just fundamental things in this movie that it is it is just not the temperament of a john waters movie and where like we said, we've we've said it already before. The influences are here, but that is for every single filmmaker out there. The influences, you can't help but be influenced by people that have come before you and movies that you've loved. But I honestly feel like, yeah, this is not a John Waters movie to me. It is, it is very much, it, it's a Jamie Babbitt movie. And I'll say this too, this is off topic, but just as, you know, I love Natasha Leone. Mm-hmm. Um, if you love Natasha Leone on Orange is the New Black, and that's what you know Natasha Leone from. This was like the heyday of Natasha Leone. I mean, the 90s. But like 1999 yeah. was like yeah. a hot year And I for think her. this is like kind of like a sort of like a landmark film in her career. Yeah. And doing yeah. what she does best. Like she's like cultivating that character that we've all grown to love. Yeah, she's kind of one of my uh, faves. Kind of come full circle. You were recently telling me that you watched Russian Doll that's directed by... Oh, yeah. But I'm a cheerleader's Jamie Babbitt. Yeah. Um, she did some episodes. Uh, Russian Doll is on Netflix right now. It was really good. Um, I still have yet to see it, but I'm excited. Yeah. It was a... I think you, you said you started watching it, and then you're like, I got to pay attention uh, I, to this. I got to tell you, I, I, <laughs> there's there's some things I throw on when I'm, I do a lot of cooking, mm-hmm. and when I'm doing my prep work... I throw something on and I thought that was something I could throw on when I'm doing my prep work and immediately realize like, now I need to, this needs my full attention. It was one that I was like, well, I'm going to just sit down and make a bunch of graphics while watching this entire series. It was really good. But yeah, full circle. And also, uh, Netflix needs to get the damn Golden Girls on there. So (laughs) that's what I need. I'm like reduced to, like, I'm mostly I watch Cheers when I'm prepping, but someone needs to get the Golden Girls up and running so Mm -hmm. I can have that in the background. Can do that. That's a good one to do that too. You know, Justin, we should probably hit on the cast of this movie because it is such an ensemble piece. Natasha Leone is definitely the star. Um, I'd say, you know, right right beside her would be Clea Duvall, Kathy Moriarty, and RuPaul, RuPaul Charles. I think everybody knows who that is. But Clea Duvall has definitely had a long-spanning career, uh, just like Natasha Leone, and kind of full circle with her. She went on to, in, in 2016, direct and write a movie called The Intervention, which featured Natasha Leone as her partner. Really? Yes, really. I'll have to let you borrow that. I, I, I own it. The Intervention also stars Melanie uh, Linsky, that was in But I'm a Cheerleader as well. She plays Hillary. 
And she was in Heavenly Creatures, which is a very intense movie. If you haven't seen that, check out Heavenly Creatures. I love that movie. It's so good. It's very, I think intense isn't even the most intense word to use for that movie. Let's see. Who do, who else do we have? Kathy Moriarty. Maybe one of her biggest movies early in her career was Raging Bull. I've talked about Soap Dish before. She She's kind of always been around. And the bit players in this, not even bit players, but this ensemble cast, um, we've got Eddie Cibrian, Katrina Phillips, Catherine Town. She did, uh, uh, she's in Mulholland Drive for a little while, What Lies Beneath. And then there's Joel Michaeli. He seems to pop up in so many movies. Like he's in The Rules of Attraction with Kip Pardue, who is in But I'm a Cheerleader. I know you love Rules of Attraction. I do. I don't know if I'm in the minority on that, but I've seen that movie quite a bit. I enjoy the flow of it so much. And he also, you know, do you know Can't Hardly Wait? You know that movie? I, I do know it. I went to high school with that movie. And he plays an X-Files nerd, and I was an X-Files nerd, so... Oh. I know. Um, <laughs> um, As I found out more of your intensity in the intro. Yeah, I keep just letting out how much of a... Anyway, I'll just let that one lie there. Um, there's also uh, Dante Bosco. Let's see, I remember him from an MTV show called Undressed. He's done. A, he continues to do a lot of TV all, uh, as well as uh, Douglas Spain, who does a lot of TV also in Band of Brothers. Man, who am I who am I missing? I feel like I'm missing somebody in here. We have uh, John Waters, Starlet, Mink Stole, and uh kind of what cult icon. Oh yeah. Court, you know. Yeah. So the you know, and I think they're they fit in pretty well. I can never get enough of Mink Stole. Yeah. <laughs> and going back to Jamie Babbitt, I know we mentioned her recent work being Russian doll, but uh post But I'm a cheerleader, she did a ton of television directing um you know, she did like 20 episodes of the Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Uh, she did multiple episodes of the HBO series Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple she, episodes of uh, The L Word. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of sort of one or two episodes of a lot of hit shows um, over the past like 15 years. She also did a couple episodes of a, did you see the, Uni- the United States of Terra? I've I, never, I've never seen that. I loved that show. Yeah. I was bummed when it got canceled. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Everyone like loves that show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in 2007, Jamie Babbitt also wrote and directed a movie called The Itty Bitty Titty Committee. And from a Riot girl punk like perspective, feminist, gay perspective, it's an awesome movie. And I think definitely for a younger up-and-coming generation, I, I appreciated it uh, when, when it came out. I really do need to revisit it. It's probably been since 2007 since I've seen it. But yeah, she's she kind of... Uh, we, we talked a little bit about her. So she made some independent films and then kind of made a transition over into TV, yeah. which is not how Just things a lot of, used to be. Yeah, a lot of 90s directors did that. It was mm-hmm. sort of the thing to you kind of needed to do because... It's where the money was. Where the money was. And yeah. now, luckily... Those they did it because every, all the good stuff's on television now. Yeah, right. It's, it's all about a, yeah. what's the new show you're watching. Yeah. Have you seen this year? Yeah. Have you binge watched? I watch the more three television theories? shows than I do movies now. It's kind of crazy. Remember when you watched yeah. three seasons of the Fall? I do. I'm I really did. glad that you all watched in like that one weekend. Yeah, I was pretty. Happy I didn't you edit that. the podcast for an entire weekend <laughs> because of the fall. Watching the fall. <laughs> I was just like everything I was doing. I was just like eating. And watching it and like doing my laundry, like, you know, 
like walking around with my phone, I'd just probably look like a total weirdo. Yeah, watching that yeah. show on your phone, maybe. Yeah, if you haven't seen The Fall, I, it's good stuff. <sighs> if you're into, you know, if you're into like just watching like tons of weird serial killer stuff, which I'm all about. Me too. Sometimes I wonder like if I've just seen too much. It was a good dramatic pause there. It was. <laughs> It was like you made me question myself <laughs> with your pause. It was so dramatic. That's what I was going for. Yeah, good work. Um, um, do we have anything else you want to talk about with? Uh, but I'm a cheerleader. Before we wrap it up, one one real quick thing. I don't know if this, if I'm making this up or if this was intentional on the director's part, but Natasha Leone's parents in But I'm a Cheerleader are, are Mink Stoll, who, as we already said, was in a hell of a ton of. John Waters movies and Minkstoll's husband is Bud Court who was the boy in Harold and Maude maybe Minkstoll was a shout out to being influenced by John Waters maybe I don't know but the the Bud Court aspect I'm wondering if because that movie Harold and Maude which so many people love you know was about how kind of like love is is blind you just you fall in love with who you fall in love with and I don't know, was the casting of Bud Court hmm. intentional because of that? Interesting. I don't know. That's uh, I, I can see that. I definitely feel the, the casting of both Bud Court and Mink Stoll was... Uh, it wasn't necessary it for wasn't, either one of them. But, 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 but there was a, you know, this, this movie clearly has a non-mainstream vibe happening mm-hmm. in both of the movies, or both movies of Bud Court and Mink Stoll are from, like, they... But or off the beaten path. Off the beaten yeah. path. A lot of those movies are cult classics, and then mm-hmm. now, but I'm a cheerleader has become. It's played at midnight, you know, in cities. It's become its own cult classic in some ways. I hope it still continues that route because it's ominously still relevant today. I think it's still kind of timely, which is sad. But you know, ex gay camps, Exodus, as what the giant organization was called, is it has been disbanded. I think it was 2012. Yes, it was 2012. I mean, that, that was an awful organization. I kind of don't even like want to go into the history of that. But look it up, Exodus. They're pretty awful. But little offshoots that were very real conversion therapy, ex-gay camps, like, still exist out there. And so, sadly, this is something that is is still relevant. Anyway, this is an awesome satire on on a very serious subject. And thank you, Jamie Babbitt, for making a movie that making a gay movie that had a happy ending for once and um, that didn't uh, feel like an after school special either yeah it does not yeah. yeah let's move on to our picks of the week all right so for our picks of the week in staying kind of with but i'm a cheerleader as this is the month of june um it is also pride month so we kind of stuck with that theme a little bit you know n- not saying this is the only time we're ever going to talk about anything lgbtq related uh, only during the month of June. That is the only time. But this is, uh, you know, whatever. We did it for this episode. Um, and Justin, you went with uh, Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix in my own private Idaho. That is correct. You want to tell tell us all a little about it? I'll tell us a little bit about that movie. I'd love to hear. So my own private Idaho was directed by Gus Van Sant, who made his breakout with the film Drugstore Cowboy, which happens to probably be in one of my top 10 favorite films of all time. 
So Mile Private Idaho follows a story of Mike and Scott, who are best friends and also male hustlers that are living in Seattle. Um, they're both about 20 years old. And the movie itself kind of shows, uh, surrounds itself around a group of street kids who are also hustling sex to make money to make ends meet, depending on each other for safety. And the movie is uh, loosely based on Henry IV by William Shakespeare, so... A lot of the dialogue is very theatrical. It's very like overdramatic in a way. Like that can be a turnoff for some people. Um, it is. Uh, it it can be distracting at times. But just uh, a fair warning if you haven't seen the film. But I think that it's driven by the just insanely amazing performance by River Phoenix. This is a movie that's going to make you miss River Phoenix. But River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves play the two main characters. Uh, this movie is somewhat of a road trip movie. Uh, takes place in Seattle, then they move on to Portland, they move on to Idaho, to Rome. The main story centers on River Phoenix's character who suffers from narcolepsy, which is a disorder where you can suddenly just fall asleep and can be pretty dangerous uh, disease for anyone that suffers from it. Um, he has about six or seven episodes throughout the movie, and when this happens, uh, he's sort of like left completely debilitated where he's like laying in the streets. A lot of times during these episodes, uh, Keanu Reeves, who is his best friend, uh, helps him out. Both of these guys come from two different backgrounds. River Phoenix comes from a broken home. A lot of the movie surrounds the mystery around what happened to his mother and the search for his mother. Keanu Reeves comes from somewhat of a broken home himself, but his father is like extremely rich and Keanu Reeves is going to inherit in his father's fortune when he turns 21 his father is also dying but their lives intersect they become best friends but there's also a bond between them that sort of gets complicated because river phoenix's character is in love with Keanu reeves character and Keanu reeves though he's hustling for sex uh, he makes it clear to river phoenix that he only sleeps with guys for money. He can't love a man. And River Phoenix wants to be more than friends. So their friendship uh, comes to a halt once they finally get to Rome. And Keanu Reeves sort of falls in love with a American woman that he finds in Rome. I have to give a lot of credit to River Phoenix um, upon researching this movie. Um, the original script of this was a relationship between um, River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. And whether River Phoenix's character was gay was somewhat ambiguous in the original script, which Gus Van Sant kept ambiguous because he was having a lot of problems getting funding for the movie because people didn't want to fund a movie that was an outright gay movie. So they went ahead and started filming and River Phoenix, you know, said, you know, my character's obviously gay. Like, I don't like the fact that why are we making this ambiguous? So he rewrote what I consider to be the best scene in the film where they're at the campfire and River Phoenix breaks it down for Keanu Reeves saying, I, I want to be more than friends. I want to have a relationship with you. I'm in love with you. And to me, everything that happens after that is so much more clear. I think if that scene didn't happen the way it did, it was originally written as like this very short scene. I, I, I could find a lot of what's going on in the film confusing. And at the end of the movie, there is a mystery. Because at the end of the movie, they've sort of like broken off friendships like Keanu Reeves inherits the money his father dies he's living this life of luxury River Phoenix is exactly how he started in the film and he has one of his narcoleptic fits and this time when he has it he's robbed of all his belongings because 
his best friend isn't there to save him. A little bit later, we see this sort of mysterious figure pick him up off the ground, like Keanu Reeves, his friend, had done many times before in a film, and carry him away. And it's not known whether or not that's Keanu Reeves. I mean, it, there's an implication that there is. It is sort of a sad tale, but in the end, there is like it has a somewhat happy ending. It's an experimental film in some ways. Like there's a lot of stop motion. This movie is just absolutely gorgeous. Like very poetic and beautiful. It is a very uh, interesting film. It is a slow burn. Um, but I think that when you're watching this movie, if, if there's a movie to watch to see the pure talent of River Phoenix, in the same way that people talk about James Dean, of like he only starred in three movies, and when you watch James Dean, you know he just he just comes to life no matter you know the three or four films you see him in. I feel the same way about River Phoenix, and this is a movie where like anytime he's on screen, you just can't take your eyes off of him. Yeah, River Phoenix. That was a great pick. I can't wait to revisit this one. I know that this is in the collection of movies that I have taped on VHS. And this is another movie, too, where the music in this is uh, predominantly scored with a lap steel, which I think is just such an ominous and beautiful sounding instrument that I really, really love. Sorry, just kind of afterthought. No, no. I was just, well, while you were talking i was looking at at photos just of like the production of it it is such a beautiful film and and i'll say this you know i'll give this to gus van stant he was kind of ahead of his time and when i was watching this movie my wife mary walked in at sort of the beginning and she was like oh well the credits of this are like multicolored and actually it's the same credits that but i'm a cheerleader use but she was like they use this in like girls and like all these modern films and Gus Van Sant, I feel like, has always been a little bit ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. You know, so many movies in the 90s used Shakespeare as a, you know, uh, sort of based on Shakespeare plays yeah. to do, mod- yeah. you know, young, fashionable kids speaking in Shakespearean uh, dialect. Yeah. Um, or just he retelling went on, of that. He yeah. went on to do a shot for shot remake of Psycho, yeah. which he was just completely um, ripped, apart for. ripped apart for. And. It's funny because that was 20 years ago, and now every single movie that I've ever <laughs> loved growing up has been rebooted or remade in yeah. some sort of fashion. People don't even think about it now. They're just like, it's a, it's a reboot. It's just, you know, it's just a reimagining. Just but when Gus Van Sant was the first one to do it, people just totally freaked out. So it's like, he's just always been ahead of his time. He's definitely a filmmaker who has continued to, most of the movies he's made, he's just made on his own terms. And if he can get the money, he'll get it. And if he can't get the money he needs, he'll go ahead and make the movie whatever way he can. He'll use all non-actors if he has to. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Oh, he did an episode of that, oh, that uh, miniseries um, about um, the gay rights movement, When We Rise. He did one episode of that. God, that series ripped me apart. That was really good. Um, I love Gus Van Zandt and I was not one of the haters of that Psycho remake, just so you no, know. He he is one of my favorite directors and I, I got the rare opportunity to see him uh, speak it. Is that right? I, got, I, I went to Sundance again to bring up my good buddy, Justin Hayward. He had a film in Sundance and he invited me to come hang out with him while his movie was at Sundance. That's awesome. And while we were there, I was like, oh my gosh, Gus Van Sant is at Sundance and he's showing his very first film, Alan Oche, and he's going to do a Q&A and talk about his career. And so we got into the 
screening and Dude. it was just uh it was completely awesome serial pick of the week was all over me which is one that i was going to do and you felt very strongly about doing it so i opted out of it which i'm glad i did because i think i probably wouldn't be able to do it the justice that you'll be able to do i am pretty thankful to be talking about all over me as it was one of the most formative movies in my youth so thank you justin for uh for conceding on this one let me do it all right, so All Over Me follows best friends Claude and Ellen deep into 90s inner city youth culture with drugs, body dysphoria, and homophobia. And in one night, everything has changed when Claude's new friend and neighbor, who is a gay man, is viciously murdered by her best friend's boyfriend. This movie is a clever blend of storytelling, I feel like. While much of it is Claude learning about herself, um, that she is indeed very gay and in love with her manipulative straight best friend, about midway through, it turns into a story about right and wrong. Once Claude understands Ellen's boyfriend murdered her friend, she's torn between betraying the girl that she loves and doing what's right. And this may seem like an obvious you know, decision to be made, but when you're 15 and scared, choices like this kind of seem more than difficult all over me was made by a sister duo alex and sylvia sachal after receiving a grant to make a movie involving the riot girl music scene and for those of you who don't know about the riot girl music movement of the 90s it was an extremely important and influential punk rock subculture uh which put like a feminist consciousness into a music scene that was largely male dominated And the soundtrack to All Over Me is an impressive Riot Girl mixtape, to say the least. I mean, we've got Sleater Kinney, Helium, The Murmurs, The Amps, Ani DeFranco, Babes in Toyland, Patti Smith, oh, Jesus, Mary Chain, Tuscadero, just to name a few. And on top of that, Mary Timoney of Helium and Leisha Haley from The Murmurs and also Uh Uh-huh Her and the show and Showtime's The L Word appear in the movie as the fake band Coochie Pop, which is... Such a 90s. <laughs> <laughs> it's like right up there with uh, uh, camel lips in um, uh, Serial Mom. <laughs> also, I don't think anything's more 90s than the murmurs. I know. You suck. Can we, re- can we just take a moment to remember the murmurs? You suck. Okay, moving on. This was my first Riot Girl punk rock movie that I had ever seen. I felt like it was this real, you know, quote unquote, real depiction of something I was experiencing the Midwest version of. Aside from not living in New York, there were multiple elements of this movie that applied to my life at the time. I dressed like Claude, for one. I was coming out to myself and kids at school. I liked music that no one had heard of except for other punk rock kids in high school but it was female centered therefore I wasn't hard enough or cool enough all over me was my kids the Larry Clark film that we did for episode 17 but it was done with more sensitivity and intimacy more intentional with actions versus haphazard it's hard for me to say if this film would affect teens in the same way that it did me at the time. It's said now that, you know, newer generations are disconnected and not fully involved in their own lives, like living through taking, you know, live video of their experiences versus actually experiencing the moment. There was a recent Broad City episode where they talked about this or did a whole episode on it. 
But when I saw All Over Me at the video rental when I was a kid, I knew that I had to see it immediately. I I checked back for weeks and whoever had it, whoever that jerk was, never bothered to ever return it. So the video store clerk, I guess, had just grown tired of, you know, the 16-year-old me coming in and asking for it. So they offered to order me a copy to buy. God, I must have been so annoying for them. This isn't an after-school special movie. It's a gritty coming-of-age story, and while a large part of it is painful, it leaves you feeling hopeful that you can overcome being manipulated, you can be strong enough to be honest about your sexuality, and you can do the right thing, even if that's narking out about a murder. But, I mean, come on, you're probably going to be, you know, less scarred if you do that versus not. Although this movie is really heavy. So is adolescence for some people. Like, but I'm a cheerleader all over me does appeal to anyone who is, who was, or felt like an outcast. I feel like this movie is about empowerment, even though it is heavy. Even if you're a timid wallflower, like Claude here in this movie, it ends in the most positive ways possible. She finds an actual lesbian love interest to finally start a band with a girl who actually likes her and isn't just using her like her best friend, like her former best friend. And speaking of that former best friend, um, in the final scene, Claude is bearing this good luck charm that was given to her by her hate crimed friend before he died. And she sees the express friend in the in the distance. But Claude knows that she can't go back to that relationship. She can't know that girl anymore. It's a powerful movie. And the Seychelles sisters really captured adolescence in such a honest way that I feel like it's kind of rarely seen anymore. I don't know, Justin, how well do you remember this movie? Not that well. Yeah. So that my, when I picked it, I was just like, I, you know, I think like any movie that deals with like, that had a lot of like music of the nineties and so much anybody even like remotely playing in the band, I was gravitated toward. It was so like it. It is. It is a mixtape. It is a nineties mixtape. In the nineties, like I was one of those people. Like always, want I like didn't know how to play music, but I just like always thought it'd be really cool to be in a band. A lot of scenes where it is a really moving moment. Like two things that stick out to me. Like Claude, the main character, is having a emotional breakdown to a Patti Smith song in front of this girl that she likes and it's like kind of weird and awkward and makes makes you feel uh, like it's very off-putting um there's also like another scene where she's finally had it with like her best friend and it's this montage of her throwing her friend's crap out of her room to this amps song Kim Deal band um it's just like there there's a lot of uh it was, it's a very music-heavy movie. Anyway, I liked our picks of the week. Yeah. This whole podcast has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, well, let's um, keep it going. Let's move on. This is your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow... Come and shake my monkey tree again! Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. That was fun.
I was trying to figure out how to relate Bill Murray to our main feature, and I was thinking about But I'm a Cheerleader as a movie about closeted gay people, repression, hiding who you are, that sort of thing. And just thinking about how movies have changed since 1999 and now, I mean, we've already talked about it. It's, it's staggering. And what's even more staggering, though, is how much being closeted is still kind of a thing, but never could be as much as it was like in the classic Hollywood age of cinema. Gay visibility has significantly improved. I mean, marrying someone as a cover, you know, getting into a heterosexual marriage isn't really something that people in in Hollywood do anymore. I'm not saying that people don't do that at all. I'm sure they, they do, just not as commonplace as it once was. But it certainly was a thing for some big name old Hollywood actors and actresses. And one person who was commonly thought of as a closeted gay or bisexual actor of the time, also happens to be a man our Billy has always greatly admired. And that actor was was the legendary Cary Grant. Now, I'm not the first to say that Grant was somewhat closeted, but the truth is, is that no one will ever really know for sure. There are only highly suggestive stories and confessions and conclusions that could be drawn from what might seem really obvious by today's standards, but truthfully, his truth died with him. But in paying respect to a talented fellow who many felt was a victim of repression, this Murray moment is about Billy's admiration of Cary Grant. Well, obviously there's a resemblance, Billy jokingly said of Cary Grant on a interview with Elvis Mitchell under the influence. He's an actor I really, really liked. He was great. He was able to make being suave and debonair seem so natural. He moves so gently, so gracefully with everything that he did. He gets a suit out of the closet in North by Northwest and you're like, wow, look at that man get a suit out of that closet. It was breathtaking. And the more I really think about it, there are kind of some similarities between Billy and Grant. Stick with me here, Justin. I know it might seem kind of crazy, but just stick with me. Whether it's the quirky, comical cluelessness of Billy and the man who knew too little paired against any screwball comedy of Grant's or maybe Billy's suaveness and charisma that can seemingly woo any woman in Broken Flowers paired against any single movie where Grant had a female love interest or maybe even Grant's alcoholic sea captain in Father Goose to Billy's Steve Zizou in A Life Aquatic and Even multiple similarities between Lost in Translation and North by Northwest. You know, like two men in their 50s, out of their element, lost in crisis, confused by their surroundings. Even the trajectories of their careers, starting off in production companies with comedies and then later moving to more serious roles, even if they still did have a little twinge of humor. Cary Grant lived a life of discretion, and Billy's always been a private person as well, only showing his hand on his own terms. Both actors got their start in theater. Both men really couldn't focus in school, and they were always flitting around and often were thought of as being pretty unfocused until they found their path in acting. And with theater, you learn it's not always about you. It's about those you surround yourself with. He always made other people look good, Billy said of Grant. And that's what they taught us at Second City, was that you make the other person look good. You don't have to worry about yourself so much. Cary Grant made other people look good. He never dominated someone in scenes or acted bigger than anyone else. He was always very aware of other people 
And a big part of acting is about what you give to the other actors around you. And one moment, I guess the true moment of this Murray moment was in the 80s when Billy and Grant happened to be dining at the same restaurant. As a fan of Grant's work, Billy was stunned seeing him out in the wild like that and not in a movie. He said he fought off the very intense feeling of wanting to go over and say something. Billy, who was totally a well-known actor at this point, wanted to march right over and confess how much he loved Grant. But he didn't. He held back. Billy said that when Grant left the restaurant, they made eye contact, and a nonverbal affirmation was assured to him. In remembering this moment, Billy said, He gave this look to me that said, That was cool. I know what you did. I know what you felt. But you sat there, and you didn't do it. That was cool. Billy knew he did the right thing, leaving him alone like he did. And I feel you, Billy. I had the same experience in a public restroom with Lily Tomlin one time. Billy ran into someone a little bit later on who knew Grant. The person confirmed that Grant did indeed see Billy, knew exactly who he was, even like Billy's movies, and said that he was very thankful for that moment. And Justin, I know this might have been a meandering Murray moment, but the deep appreciation of someone like Cary Grant is exactly why we do this Billy Murray moment segment in the first place. And that unspoken moment between them where they both understood what was up was kind of how Grant lived his whole life. As I have a deep affection for Grant and Billy, obviously, I genuinely adore that they shared this moment and, um, you know, kind of somehow things just feel like it just makes sense. Maybe that was his only interaction with Cary Grant his whole life. It probably was. Still is pretty cool. I hope I see Bill Murray from across a room and we just nod at each other. He knows who I am. I know who he is. And that's it. Actually, I don't hope that, but like, I hope it's way more than that. I hope we hang out for hours and hours and hours. But if it is that. He comes uh, up and says, Lindsay, and embraces you in like a big bear <laughs> hug. But if it is across the room from like 70 feet and we just nod, I'll remember this Cary Grant moment and go, I get it. So thanks again for that Murray moment. Even though I let you down. It's you didn't cool. let me down. I thought you were going to go the Ed Wood route, but you didn't. But no, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know that he was a big admirer of Cary Grant. Well, do we have any final thoughts on, but I'm a cheerleader? Was I, th- I felt like we covered everything. Was there anything we missed out on? It has a great soundtrack. I feel like when that movie came out, it was like right around, uh, it was before Napster. It was like Audio Galaxy. It w- okay. Wasn't he, it wasn't a soundtrack that had been really released. And I uh, remember finding each individual song and downloading it and making it a compilation. Um, it was how I got into the band Dressy Bessie. Oh. My, my old band played with them a couple times too. Wow. Now I'm going to have to pay attention more to the soundtrack. It's pretty it's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that just about wraps everything up for this episode. Next up, we have uh we're taking a dramatic turn to a more dramatic film, and that's 1991's New Jack City, which is one that uh I uh wanted to do last season and it didn't quite make the cut. And so 
I think it's. I think, I think it time. just kept being pushed off. Yeah, yeah. It's but just one. You know, we have all these movies. We shuffle them around to yeah. find what works. The only thing I'll say about this movie, it's always been my my Scarface. I've never been a huge Scarface fan, but this is my type of Scarface movie. It's so good. Enjoyed. I was really happy to revisit this one. Yeah. So yeah. we'll get into New Jack City next episode. Um, we're on, you know, you can see us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Don't Push Pause Podcast. You can always reach us at our website, don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Um, download old episodes. Feel free to rate us on iTunes. Uh, if you feel like we deserve a five-star rating, give us that. Leave a review. That helps us build a following. Any suggestions for the website, too? Let yeah. me know. Let me yeah. know. So until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.